Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Hello and welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am your host, Nico Perino. And today we're heading back to college campuses, where we'll be diving into two of the more contentious debates surrounding academic freedom. The first is the rising prevalence of so-called diversity, equity, and inclusion statements for college faculty job applications and evaluations. While these requirements, you know, for these sort of diversity, equity, and inclusion statements, we'll call them DEI statements throughout the course of this conversation, they differ from school to school, and we'll get into that a bit. But in short, they generally require faculty to write a statement attesting to their commitment to diversity, equity, inclusion, and how their past work inside and outside the classroom supports these values and how they plan to commit to these values in their current or prospective job. Fail, And if they fail to demonstrate sufficient commitment, they could get passed over for this new job or not be promoted within the current one. Are these political litmus tests and violations of academic freedom and freedom of conscience? Some say so, and we'll explore throughout the course of this conversation. The second topic we'll cover today are trigger warnings. I think most of our listeners are familiar with what those are. There's new research out that suggests they aren't quite as effective in achieving their proponents' desired goals, when the proponents use them, of course, and they may actually work against those goals. Now, joining us to discuss these topics are Carleton College professors Amna Halid and Jeffrey Snyder. They've co-authored essays on both of these topics this year for the Chronicle of Higher Education. Those articles are titled How to Fix Diversity and Equity, and the data is in. Trigger warnings don't work. Halid is a returning guest to the show. You'll recall her from two episodes ago with Nadine Strawson and Matt Taibbi. She's a history professor who specializes in modern South Asian history and the history of medicine. She also hosts a new excellent podcast called Banished, which explores what happens when people, ideas, and works of art come into conflict with our modern sensibilities. And Snyder is a professor of educational studies whose work explores the intersections between the history of education and broader trends in U.S. cultural and intellectual history. I'm sure he's quite busy these days. He's also the author of the 2018 book, Making Black History, Race, Culture, and the Color Line in the Age of Jim Crow. Amna and Jeff, welcome onto the show. Thank you for having us. Yes, thanks so much. We're recording for the third time because we had some technical difficulties with the last two, so hopefully the third time is the charm. I want to waste no time in getting started. Let's dive in. These DEI statements, diversity, equity, and inclusion statements. I wasn't hearing about these 10 years ago when I started at FIRE. They seem to have burst onto the scene in the last couple of years. Jeff, was I missing something 10 years ago, or did they really just start to kind of rise in prevalence within the academy? Yeah, so I'd say about 10 years ago, I'm sure that some institutions uh, may have asked um, uh, people to write diversity statements, but it is definitely only in the last two or three years that DEI statements have been used as a mechanism for uh, hiring, review, and promotion. So that is absolutely a a new development. I do think it's important to place these diversity statement uh, initiatives in, in a broader context of attempts to diversify higher education. 
And this, of course, goes back to the 1960s and 70s, uh, affirmative action and um, um, uh, strong uh, initiatives and push on the part of uh, institutions of higher education to, to diversify both their student body and, and faculty. And you can see those continuing through the 80s and 90s in, in terms of different recruitment initiatives. So in some ways, uh, these diversity statements are a natural extension of the kind of work uh, in this space that's been happening over the past really 40 or 50 years. I want to read some of these diversity statements because I think that'll help con contextualize this conversation. We had our interns this past summer go through a lot of the job listings at many colleges across the country and pull out the examples that they had from um, these various colleges. You know, California Institute of Technology, they had an assistant professor of economics position which stated applicants should submit a diversity and inclusion statement that discusses past or anticipated contributions to improving diversity, equity, and inclusion in the areas of research, teaching, and or outreach. Uh, UCLA actually has instituted a school-wide mandate that applications for regular rank faculty positions include diversity statements. And that, that reads statements on contributions to equity, diversity, and inclusion. An EDI statement describes a faculty candidate's past, present, and future or planned contributions to DEI. And then they say to learn more about how UCLA thinks about contributions to equity, diversity, and inclusion, please review our sample guidance for candidates and related EDI statements. I'm trying to see here whether there's any that kind of differ from those first two. Uh, there's another one at the University of Florida for a full professor of genetic epidemiology. Yale's uh, has one for a professor in the nursing school, which is actually a little bit different and I think goes further than some of those previous ones. It said faculty members in the Yale School of Nursing contribute to the tripartite mission of practice, scholarship, and teaching. And then it goes on to say, with an overarching effort to support social justice, diversity, equity, inclusion, anti-racism slash anti-oppression, and reconciliation. And then you have a couple of um, statements or requests for statements that are optional. So University of Texas at Austin, they have a professor of economics position that said applicants are encouraged to discuss in their cover letter or separate statement their past contributions to DEI. Stanford has a professor of film and documentary uh, that says candidates may optionally include as part of their research or teaching statement a brief discussion of how they work to further these ideals. Let's talk an, a little bit about, I mean, let's work through a little bit uh, you know, what are what are some of the problems with these from your perspectives? You know, in the article you wrote for the Chronicle Higher Education, I think it's very clear that in some cases you sympathize with the aims, but you think these statements are the wrong vehicle to achieving those ends, and they actually violate um, some important values of the university. How so? What do you see as the problem? So um, I'll take that question and. Let me begin by saying that the intention behind these statements or the requiring of these statements is is pretty noble. You know, the fact is that higher ed has been dominated by certain groups of people for a long period of time. And diversity in the abstract um, is a good idea, as is inclusion. However, the question is, how are we thinking about diversity, equity and inclusion and how are we defining them? What we're finding is that most of these terms are highly ideologically defined, whereby, for instance, diversity means only demographic diversity. It is not taking class into consideration. It is not taking other axes into consideration, uh, identity axes. And the, the trouble with that is that it very quickly turns into a box-checking exercise and becomes very meaningless. So while we have 
great respect for the intentions behind them. This is not the way to achieve those. The other thing is there's very little discussion of what we actually mean by diversity, equity, and inclusion. These are big terms that sound really good. Of course, you're on board with diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the trouble is when you critique it, people often kind of, they have this knee-jerk reaction. They say, well, what, you're not in favor of anti-racism? Well, we are in favor of anti-racism. We're just not in favor of anti-racism, Inc., um, which is a term that we've used, which is this new brand of anti-racism, which is highly prescriptive, defines exactly what counts as racist or not racist. Um, and, and finally, the final point I'll say, and we can talk about this in more detail, is you know some of these values can actually at times be in conflict, but there's no discussion about how diversity and inclusion can actually be in conflict. There's this understanding, because they sound good, we bunch them together, and there we go. We've got a neat little package, and now everyone has to address it. The trouble is when you don't define these things in a sophisticated fashion, people will use the requisite jargon which has emerged just to say that they're doing these things and it becomes very quickly a meaningless exercise. Yeah. If I could just, could I jump in just to step back and and reinforce a uh, point that, that Amna made about uh, the good intentions behind these efforts. So I'm a historian of education, right? And if you look at the history of higher education in, in the United States, um, it has been an overwhelmingly elitist endeavor uh, for, for many, many years. I think uh, this stat is correct. Uh, circa 1965, something like over 90% of students attending colleges and universities were, were white males, right? So you can see that there's been systematic underrepresentation of particular uh, groups on college campuses. Uh, and some of that is due to um, very serious um, uh, legacies of systematic discrimination, right? So, so people have been actively prevented from enrolling in certain schools, right? If you're a black in the South in the 1940s, uh, you weren't going to be able to go to what we call to today a predominantly white institution, right? So you have this historical piece that I think is very important that's motivating DEI initiatives. Uh, you also have what I think is a noteworthy mismatch between the composition of faculty on colleges and universities and the composition of students. So I'm going to look at my notes here and just mention, so I'm looking at these are stats from, uh, from 2017. In 2017, uh, 6% of faculty members were black and 5% were Hispanic. Now compare that to the student body. Uh, black students make up 14% of students at college and universities and Hispanic students make up 20%. Uh, these are numbers for the undergraduate student population. So I think these discrepancies are uh, jarring uh, and they're well worth paying attention to. Now, you know, I, I think we all recognize that there's a role within a college and university environment to making sure that, you know, diverse perspectives exist, that the student body is reflective of the society at large uh, so that you get those differing perspectives, right? Uh, and that when, you know, people are on campus that they feel welcome and able to contribute. Uh, but the, the, the question with the diversity, equity, and inclusion statements is there seems to be a layer of ideology uh, across it. And, and Amna, you, you, you got to that. A lot of this, a lot of these 
statements, and you'll see this in some of the policies, came out of working group committees uh, that went into effect after the George Floyd protests, for example, last year. Some of them were explicitly called anti-racism committees. And anti-racism is a particular perspective on racism in society. It's not the definitive definition of racism or how to address racism, but they're all they're you're they're putting together these committees, which were very much in vogue. Anti-racism was very much in vogue last year, and creating prescriptions for what the university should do in support of this ideology called anti-racism. And then and in some cases they were asked to you know, implement these diversity, equity, and inclusion statements, not defining what diversity means, not defining what inclusion means, and not defining what equity means. And I, and I, and I ended there on equity because equity is a word that has also become very vogue lately, particularly on the left within progressive circles that is more ideologically loaded than perhaps equality, which is the word that was used in its place for many, many years. And just like many other issues that we might deal with, immigration, patriotism, maybe free speech even, you know, the concern with this sort of issue seems to map politically in a certain direction. You know, progressives seem to be very interested in this. Um, and it's not to say that conservatives or libertarians or any other political persuasion isn't as concerned with it or isn't concerned that the student body be diverse. They're just not concerned about it in the same way. So th- the concern that I have you know, as someone who cares about an actual diverse uh, student body and faculty is that they're just going to use this as a litmus test or a screening tool to root out people who do not ascribe to the anti-racism view of DEI or even to the progressive view of DEI. And even though some of these colleges and universities say that it's not going to be used as a criteria to root people out, some of them say it actually will be. And we can talk about UC Berkeley and some of the stats that you had there. You can't, you can't prove a negative. You can't prove that someone wasn't hired because they they didn't write, you know, a diversity, equity, and inclusion statement that kind of mapped onto the political lanes of the people who wanted to implement these. They just don't get hired, right? I'm going to stop there because Amna, it seems like you have some thoughts. No, I couldn't agree saying. more. I think this is exactly why we're so critical of these because it'll become very difficult to prove that they were being used as a political litmus test. Yet, The fact of the matter is that they open the door, the conversations that we've seen taking place on campuses, being reproduced in these kinds of mandates for such statements, are very indicative of a very particular ideological position. Now, the trouble with that is that I think it, you know, we already have campuses where diverse points of view are not necessarily welcome. And we're defining diversity in such a narrow way, but it'll become a cudgel for actually even further marginalizing those points of view, which are already not welcome. So, you know, FIRE has data on this, Heterodox Academy has done work on this, that campuses are, you know, predominantly liberal and left-leaning in terms of their ideological makeup, and conservative voices are already feeling shut out and um, isolated. Now, with this kind of mechanism, we're actually putting into place a system through which these people can be screened out and never, you know, no one can be held accountable because no one can actually come back and say, you're using this as a political litmus test. So there are many levels at which there is this gap between what the aspiration is and what the actual outcome is. And what bothers me the most is that we're using all these terms that, again, sound good, but they can be mobilized to do things that are deeply harmful. 
So yeah, I mean, I would I would note that right the extent to which these statements will be used as litmus tests or screening tools is an empirical question that we'll never be able to answer, right? Because uh, these these hiring committees, for very good reasons, are are you know meetings are held behind closed doors. There's confidentiality. So I'm, I must say that I am very worried and concerned about that element in the hiring process. The connection to academic freedom that Amna alluded to, to me, is an even more pressing concern. And I'd like to elaborate on something that that Amna mentioned, right, which is if you look at uh, when you were reading through the um, job descriptions and the calls for for diversity statements, right, you'll see in uh, many of them, if not the majority of them at this point, an explicit connection to anti-racism. Now, I think, uh, I suspect that the overwhelming majority of faculty, no matter their ethno-racial background on college campuses across this country, and aspiring faculty members are are anti-racist, broadly construed, right? They want to live in in a fairer society uh, where people are not discriminated against on the basis of of their race. That said, as Amna mentioned, anti-racism, what we call anti-racism, Inc., has a very specific and a highly ideological meaning. And so I'm worried about the use of terms like that, not just in these kinds of diversity statements, but more broadly across college and university campuses, right? So you have diversity or anti-racism training, and now you even have specific positions in, in different fields, especially in the fields of educational studies, where anti-racist is part of the job description, right? Uh, a policy position, uh, the anti-racist uh, professor of, of educational policy. So the, the crux here to me is that there's no space allowed here uh, for differences of opinion within what you might call uh, anti-racism discussions or debates. So to give a specific example, I'm thinking of, you know, it's it's easy to be committed to anti-racism as an abstract principle. Then the question is, well, what are the policies that we might pursue? Let's just think about affirmative action, right? You have people across the political spectrum, smart, well-informed people who disagree on that. And I'm thinking of Randall Kennedy, who I think has been on this uh, podcast, right? Uh, uh, lawyer at the, the Harvard Law School, um, who is a very strong proponent of affirmative action, also identifies as a liberal. You have somebody like Michelle Alexander, uh, who wrote the new Jim Crow. She's opposed to affirmative action, right, on the grounds that it privileges elites and doesn't pay enough attention to reinvesting in public education at the K-12 level. So I think when you have these, these terms that are so uh, ideologically driven, it completely squeezes out the space for more meaningful discussions and debates about specific policies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, two points on on what you just brought up there, Jeff, on, on the question of how you'll actually be able to determine whether this is a political litmus test when uh, faculty hiring committees are reviewing applications. It makes me think to kind of the parallel research that's been done about resumes uh, that have uh, traditionally black names on them, right? You you can't, when when a hiring manager is looking at it and they see the black name perhaps, and they, they throw it in the do not hire pile, the evidence to prove that they were discriminating against that person is very little because there's no paper trail, right? It just kind of went into the, the do not hire pile with the other hundred applications that went in. 
Um, so the only re- reason we know that 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 sort of discrimination happens is because you can do s- sort of kind of like a holistic, you know, broad spectrum analysis of it. And that's the only way you kind of will be able to determine it here is like are fewer conservatives getting hired, for example, after the implementation of DEI statements at a given school than there were before. Now, the challenge there is that there are very few conservatives getting hired in the first place. And I think there's some research, um, anonymous research that determined that uh, hiring committees will actually screen out conservatives if they think that they're conservative. Um, now you, you've got something you want to say here? I do want to say something, and I think you're right. You know, this could very well be used as a tool to screen out conservatives. But let me give you an example. It's I, I want to take this away from a purely right-left issue, right? The fact is that Jeff and I, for instance, we both identify as liberals. We identify as significantly left of center, yet we're highly critical of this new DEI machinery and anti-racism ink. So people like us, so it's not just about cutting out diversity of viewpoints when they're coming from the conservatives. It's also about really creating a very narrow vision of what is acceptable on campus. And that, to me, is chilling. It's chilling because we don't even, we're even shutting out the diversity of viewpoint within a so-called political camp. And this reeks of indoctrination and kind of authoritarianism, intellectual authoritarianism, which is very disturbing on an American higher ed camp- campus. So yeah, to, to build, can, can I just build on what, what I'm yeah, saying here? Um, if, if you think about uh, free expression and threats to free expression, right? When a particular idea or concept or political ideolo- ideology uh, becomes so sacrosanct, so sacred that it's beyond reproach, we should all be worried no matter what our politics are. And so I'm just thinking of this recent case, right, of the University of Chicago uh, geophysicist uh, Dorian Abbott, who wrote, uh, as far as I know, he's an accomplished geophysicist, has published wi- widely. Uh, he had been invited to give a talk, a prestigious public talk at MIT within his area of expertise, geophysics. Um, and uh, students and some faculty uh, made 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 a ruckus because he had written an op-ed in Newsweek. I think it was back in in August, uh, where he called into question uh, the wisdom of some of the DEI initiatives. Um, if you, if you read his piece, you know there are things I agree with, there are things I disagree with, but it's in no way beyond the pale. It's in no way not reflective of points of view that are held in some cases by a majority of of U.S. citizens. But you found the response was so disproportionate that the very fact that he was critiquing DEI as an ideology, as a set of initiatives, was so offensive and alarming to these people that he should be actively, you know, disinvited, deplatformed, or, or whatever you want to say. So, so to my mind, once you have any idea, it doesn't matter what it is, capitalism, Marxism, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, if, if there's an idea that is seen as beyond critique, that's fundamentally antithetical to the mission of higher education. We're really going to be uh, doing a great disservice, especially to our students, if we say, hey, you know what, we can't even question these initiatives. We, we, we can't even talk about how the definitions of the terms might be contested. Yeah. And, and you're seeing that surrounding the, the term racism, right? Uh, you know, it's becoming vogue again 
to create sed- segregated educational programming. Uh, you know, it's unlawful, but we just sent a letter today to Elizabethtown College because they're having an event that you know it, it says it's only open to people of color or people who identify as people of color. You know, maybe they can wiggle out by saying identify. I don't know, but. Um, you know, we also saw this at Lewis and Clark College out on the West Coast in Portland. Um, some people with an old school view of, of racism might call those sorts of event racism, a racist. Uh, but it's kind of in vogue now in the anti-racist community that you have separate spaces for white people and people of color. So, so I, I see Amna wants to jump in, but really briefly, right? So that's a great example, right? So racial affinity groups, are they a good idea? I don't know. I've got my hunches. I've got my personal take. Right. But the fact that some people don't feel comfortable to say, hey, you know what, we're breaking into racial affinity groups on our campus. And, you know, I, I have some questions about that. Again, another topic that should be open to discussion and debate rather than, hey, this is the way things are uh, and this is the policy. And to the contrary, many, many higher ed institutions have instituted these kinds of diversity trainings and anti racist trainings, which have mandated and expressly excluded people of certain backgrounds from these affinity groups. So the question is, and, and if you raise that question on campus where these um, affinity groups are being organized, you're seen as someone who um, is just not towing the line that, ca- that should be towed. So there are serious questions. I don't want to get into diversity trainings. That's a whole separate conversation, but I'm happy to if you want to. But they are all of a piece, and there are similarities here in the things we're talking about. I I want to put some more meat on the bones here and quote from your piece where you talk about the University of California, Berkeley, which has adopted, and I'm quoting you here, has adopted an even more elaborate three-tiered five-point scoring system. In recent searches conducted by eight departments in the life sciences, it was used to sort through 893 eligible candidates. Candidates were first evaluated on knowledge about DEI and belonging, then on their track record in advancing DEI, and finally on their plans for advancing DEI. 679 of the candidates failed to progress through this trial by DEI metrics and did not even have their scholarly credentials evaluated. Taking it to absurd, the absurd, you could have a Nobel laureate uh, apply for a job. If they don't win this trial by DEI metrics, they won't even have the chance to have their Nobel laureate or scholarly credentials evaluated, which seems ridiculous uh, to my mind. But I, I, is University of Berkeley and your guys' research the only one that's kind of published these, these sort of metrics? Because they're quite revealing. Well, Could I make two brief points about this? They are revealing. Um One is, if you look at some of these institutions, I think Berkeley is an example of one that has a particularly kind of elaborate scoring system, uh, but but a lot of institutions are uh, have internal uh, rubrics. They may not be publishing them, but they have internal rubrics for how they're going to assess uh, DEI statements. And if you look at them, they're just they're very um, the, the categories are very narrowly defined, right? And so so a couple concerns that I have, one would be, as I'm going to use the phrase earlier, box ticking exercise. If I was a candidate applying to UC Berkeley and they said, okay, you need to submit a diversity statement, what's the first thing I would do? I would Google. The second hit would be a link to the Excel spreadsheet where they include the precise rubric. Any strategic applicant who's in any degree thoughtful is going to then tailor their statement accordingly. Right, so you, there, there's a kind of funnel effect uh, when you have these these particular metrics. The, the other point, which I don't think 
um, has come up in these cases. There's something interesting here in that institutions are making individual applicants responsible for taking on the burden of DEI work. And why is that possibly uh, problematic, to use the jargon of the day? For many reasons, but one is almost no scholars receive training in DEI initiatives, right? So if you're if you're a physicist, no matter your ethno-racial background, and you're applying for a, a particular um, a faculty position, I guarantee you that the vast majority of physics programs don't have uh, support, training, or coursework that is related to developing DEI skills. So there's a way in which this is a kind of extra burden, another layer of expertise that faculty are meant to, I don't know, magically develop on their own. So you kind of have the institutional demands without the institutional supports. So I, I, to me, that's an intriguing feature. And, and, and as a result, you're probably going to get activists or more activist types mm-hmm. who are going to score better on these DEI rubrics. Absolutely. The, the I want to quote again from your piece because you guys mentioned, uh, I think Amna mentioned it earlier, the box checking exercise this, that this would encourage. And you just brought it up as well, Jeff. Campbell's Law quoting from you here, one of the most robust principles in the social sciences states that the more any qualitative or quantitative, excuse me, social indicator is used for social decision-making, the more subject it will be to corruption pressures and the more apt it will be to distort and corrupt the social processes it is intended to monitor. In other words, when numerical metrics determine outcomes, people do things you don't want them to do. They game the system. We shouldn't be surprised that there are already guides and advice columns on how and how not to write a diversity statement. So I believe at some point in the last few months in Inside Higher Ed, the the most hit on article was how to write a diversity statement. <laughs> that's very telling in itself, that, that little piece of data that we have. Um, I think this really encapsulates what I would call the neoliberalization of higher education. When we begin to narrow diversity down into these tiny little numerical things that we can check by rubric and then get the kind of person you want. It totally fundamentally misunderstands what the point of diversity is. So let me just allow me to riff a bit over here, which is what is the point of diversity in higher education? Let's dig down to the purpose of it. The entire point of diversity and why we want people from different backgrounds and different you know, ethnicities or races or whatever different backgrounds you want to talk about is so that they can bring a diverse perspective. It is about the perspective that we're trying to get. But with these box checking exercises, what you can get is people who look like the United Nations, but think exactly the same. So you are going to get that. It's just a matter of checking those boxes, but you're going to be recruiting people who are mostly coming from similar kinds of institutions, who think in the same way, who have similar ideologies, but you'll check the box of Diversity, and then actually no one can hold you accountable and say you're not actually being true to your mission of trying to bring in diverse perspectives. Yeah, along these lines of diverse perspectives, right? Diversity is one of these words that's context dependent. Who's a diverse student on a historically black college campus, right? And actually, if you look at the websites of historically black college universities, the diversity that they tout is often geographic, right? Students from all 50 states or students from 25 different countries, uh, so, so, so context is key. 
I, I want to turn now to kind of the end of your piece and posit a question where you can kind of explain how to maybe make these DEI statements less ideological, less of a litmus test. Ah. Uh, Harvard and MIT, for example, when I was going through the statements, they don't have the words diversity, equity, inclusion. I think there's they define it as diversity, inclusion, and belonging. And I want to ask if if colleges and universities ask you to submit these statements, but they cabinet to your work within the classroom and in advising students and peers, would they be less ideologically laden because they don't kind of encourage you to talk about your consulting work or your activism, political or otherwise. And they're just kind of saying, tell me what you do in the course of your teaching and in the course of your um, work on campus that encourages inclusion within the classroom and within the community and encourages belonging, kind of cutting out that equity um, word, which is more politically laden, in my opinion, than the other two words, for example. So I'm going to come in here. Belonging is a whole separate thing, and I can talk about it. But when it comes to what are you doing in your classroom to bring in diverse perspectives, that's your job. That's what we should all be doing in any case. Now, if we are asking that question in these statements, I think it's fine as long as we articulate that what we mean by diversity or by diverse perspectives. It's not just bringing in voices that are coming from people who look different, but actually how are we encouraging debate and discussion about a topic such that we are bringing viewpoint diversity on that topic into our classroom. And that's not just political viewpoint diversity, but, you know, disciplinary viewpoint diversity. Now, if we're going to frame it in that fashion, and if we're very clear about it, then we're talking about something very different. That is a metric of, are we doing our job well? Which is that we should be representing the different points of view on a topic that there are in our classroom and teaching our students how to evaluate them vis-a-vis each other. Yeah, here's what I was going to say in terms of uh, you know diversity being context-dependent. One of the enraging things about being involved in this debate is that you know DEI is often defined very abstractly, so it can kind of include everything. Uh, But then when you get specific, I've noticed that people are much more hesitant to answer direct questions. So here are some of the direct questions that I've posed to people, and I have yet to receive a satisfactory answer, right? So if you teach on an overwhelmingly liberal college campus, and you decide that as part of your uh, service to the community, you can even describe this as a kind of inclusion Uh, activity or service, Um, would advising the student Republican club count as DEI work? Um, In my view, the answer should probably be yes. Will it count? In my view, the answer is probably almost certainly no. And that's, that's that's about politics. Uh, but there are many other ways in which, I mean, you could also talk about religion, right? If, if working with uh, students of a particular religious background, um, would that count for DEI work? Um, so, so, so this to me is one of the interesting uh, features of this debate uh, in that I, find, I found proponents of these diversity statements to be very slippery and difficult to pin down when you ask specifics. And I actually asked somebody, I was like, look, would Glenn Lowry, I think we all know Glenn Lowry, right? Yeah, the he's been on the show. Yeah. Black economist at Brown. Um, would, if, 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 he, if he, you know, was, was, was going to do work elsewhere and got hired away, uh, would people think of Glenn Lowry and his work as being a contribution 
to DEI on that campus? Again, when I pose these questions, it's always radio silence. Let me just come in here and um, point out, as we have in our article as well, that on our own campus, we were mandated to do uh, anti-racism training. And we, we asked the trainer and the trainer said, anyone who is not committed to dismantling white supremacy that work would not count as DEI work. So you can already, I mean, I can't make it more clear than that how ideological this entire enterprise is. It speaks for itself. Yeah, I think the amorphous nature of these statements is just meant, you know, we talk about them not defining the terms, for example. Uh, some of them are optional. I don't know that that matters entirely. I think what the effort here is, is to just kind of get people to talk about this and then read between the lines where they might on the, fall on the ideological spectrum and whether they'd fit within the dogma or orthodoxy that's trying to be created. And they would never describe it as that, but I think that's kind of the impact here is we're trying to create an orthodoxy on, on campus. And we kind of want to use this very sophisticated way of weeding out people who might not fall within that org. It's impossible to improve, right? And that's what makes this so brilliant from their perspective is that, you know, you could, you could make the arguments that this isn't contrary to open inquiry values. Um, and then just very sophisticatedly, uh, root out those who, who, uh, wouldn't fit the orthodoxy. Can, can I just draw a quick distinction? I mean, in, in many cases, I think I would find a lot of the work that candidates are highlighting in DEI statements, uh, conventionally defined as, as really valuable. Right. So if you had a candidate who was in physics and had worked, uh, I don't know, for example, in an organization with women in STEM, uh, getting how do, you, how do you get young girls and young women interested in physics? To me, that's that's important work. It should be incorporated as part of your holistic assessment of that applicant. But there's a difference between recognizing the expertise and work that candidates have, the passions and commitments that they have, their background experiences and expecting all applicants to develop that kind of expertise. So um, d does that distinction make sense? Yeah, that, that distinction does make sense. I want to ask one more question before we turn to trigger warnings. And that is, there are some departments, for example, and this gets into the distinction between individual and departmental academic freedom, that build their whole you know, reputation around being, surrounding having their academics have a singular point of view. For example, I'm thinking of the University of Chicago Economics Department, you know, under Milton Friedman, for example, or George Mason today, their economics department is very much, a comes from a libertarian perspective. You have, but e even take it out of the realm of politics or policy, you know, you have history departments that take a per certain perspective on American history or, you know, antiquity, for example. And, and they're, they're probably not encouraging people who divert from those perspectives to apply, but that's maybe okay because the institutional disconfirmation that needs to happen within academia happens because you have other departments with diverse perspectives and other journals that publish those with diverse perspectives. So I, the, the, the challenge I've always had in thinking about DEI statements is, especially when they come from the departmental level, is like, well, do we have a problem with that, with departments hiring for a per certain perspective? And where does where does this kind of you know the the ideologically laden DEI statements that we might be concerned about fit in there, or the litmus test that you might see fit in there? And I don't have a good answer for that um, because I do think there is a role for departments that take individual perspectives and build their reputation, their prestige surrounding that. 
so here, here's where I'll come in. I actually do have a problem with if if you are teaching in a fashion, I can imagine that there are specialists in a department. You know, you need a critical mass for a certain kind of research that that is framed within a particular framework. Mm-hmm. That is fine. But as far as teaching is concerned, I think it is absolutely imperative. And we are uh, shortchanging our students if we are pushing a perspective in our classrooms. Now, again, I want to make this distinction. This is distinct from how we do our research or how we align ourselves in our research. But as educators, we have the responsibility to make our students aware of different points of view. And of course, these departments where you have people doing research in a particular area from a particular angle will attract students who are interested in that. And that is fine, but it is incumbent upon us to make sure that we are exposing them to different points of view. So I'm actually not okay with the department hiring someone for their research agenda is a different thing. But if they're hiring them to to toe a particular line in the classroom, that is wrong. I I agree 100%, right? Because if you think about uh, viewpoint diversity, there are different sources of viewpoint diversity. One might be your ideological leanings. Another is your academic training. So precisely, I think if you went to a history department and everybody did uh, social history, and nobody did cultural history or intellectual history. Uh, I mean, these may be meaningless terms to, to people who aren't professional historians, but they really represent distinctive intellectual traditions, right? Where you ask different kinds of questions and you look to different kinds of historical evidence. To me, that kind of intellectual paradigmatic diversity, if you will, uh, would be equally important as, as having a, a campus with, um, you know, Republicans, libertarians, independents, uh, liberals, progressives, uh, and and others. I don't know. Do you want to have? Do you have a final note on that topic before yeah, we move on to trigger say, warnings? I think, you know, this is something that Jeff and I talk about often, and are working on a paper to um, present soon. But th- there is something limited in how we talk about viewpoint diversity. We have limited it to political viewpoint, and and I think that's not helping the conversation. If we genuinely want to talk about viewpoint diversity, which is absolutely vital for any institution of higher education, we really need to open it up and think about it in broader terms. Yeah. I think I think it rests on the political diversity in certain respect because that seems to be where the flashpoints are. Whether it's you know conversations on campus surrounding immigration, or racism, and or CRT, for example, uh, you know they they tend to hit around political flashpoints, policy issues in a way they don't, you know, your approach to scholarship, like, uh, you know, I wish they almost <laughs> hit on the ladder because that might be a, a more fun and less politically charged debate, but here we are. I, I wonder if, you know, we took a different approach to it and came to it from a different way. Maybe it would diffuse some of this conversation around politically charged stuff, and maybe it wouldn't become so binary. It's just mm-hmm. a proposition. But I think we, by conceiving of it in these terms that become flashpoints, mm-hmm. we're actually ignoring some of where the problem really is. And if we focused on that, then maybe this would be less of a problem. It's a mm-hmm. hypothesis proposal. Yeah, but I, I think you also have a, a chicken and the egg problem. You know, to the extent that something is not politicized, once it becomes a flashpoint, it necessarily almost becomes politicized because people tend to sort along political lines, even if they're not intentionally do, doing so. Um, you know, because they they tend to check the identities of the people making the position, and for whatever reason, I, you know, call it the normal curve <laughs> or whatever, they they set, seem to fall on different sides of the the spectrum. Like, for example, I, I'm, I'm continuously 
astounded that it's Republicans who have rejected the vaccine mandates just because historically that hasn't been like, it's more been like a very, very left wing concern with vaccines and not a right wing concern. And the concerns about bodily autonomy um, and contagions have tend to not fit within the Republican framework or the conservative framework. So it's, it's just weird how things sort themselves out, you know, apolitical topics or marginally political topics sort themselves out along political lines once they become a flashpoint of some sort. Uh, I want to turn to trigger warnings now because uh, your article published, I believe, last month in September, and I've got the title here, The Data is in, Trigger Warnings Don't Work. A decade ago, there was little research on their effectiveness. Now we know. Uh, It made some waves, and one of the things that FIRE had always seen throughout our history is that trigger warnings were used, and there was an argument made for them on behalf of those who used them. But they were never really mandated uh, within colleges and universities. I think we found two colleges that, and I believe it was in the department level that mandated them. I know Drexel University in Philadelphia was one of them, and it was only in a certain context. To the extent we saw a problem with them from an academic freedom standpoint, it was like it was a faculty member would show some quote-unquote triggering content Students would complain to the college or university, and then the college, not referencing any policy that mandated they use them, would be upset or frustrated or concerned that the faculty member didn't use them before the student became became offended. But this concern around trigger warnings and the effect on mental health and their actual value in ameliorating post-traumatic stress disorder concerns um, you know, was what Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff wrote about in The Coddling of the American Mind. And even then, when they first published that in 2015, there was very little research on it. But now there is. So if you guys would talk a little bit about the research and what you'd been seeing that sparked you to write this this article, I think that would be valuable. And maybe in the course of doing that, speak to the reasons that these were implemented and how the research kind of shows that uh, the theses undergirding them fell apart when put to the empirical test. Right. So let me again begin by, and this is a similarity between what we were talking about before um, and and the issue of trigger warnings, is that the intentions are good behind these. And this is the trouble. You know, good intentions are actually the most problematic things because they result in, they can result in really troublesome outcomes, but nobody wants to call them out because the intentions were good. So those who were issuing trigger warnings, it sounds like a compassionate thing to do. And why not do it if there is a student struggling? And the idea was that it would help students. At least that's how it was proposed initially. Those who were struggling with PTSD. You should talk about that. Yeah. Students with PTSD, it would help them engage with material that would otherwise be triggering and cause a condition for them. Right. But now there is research and the research shows there are a number of things that it shows. The research shows, one, that trigger warnings are not helpful in general, especially to PTSD populations. They have been shown not to be working. Not only are they not working, they seem to be insofar as the research, uh, you know, the research is limited. But the conclusion that we have is that they're actually harmful. So, but let's let's spell out the the logic here, just to take a step back and be be clear. Because if you look at the original uh, proponents for trigger warnings on college campuses and in classroom contexts, writing around the time that Cotillin came out, circa you know 2014, 2015, um, the idea was that for this specific population of students, students with diagnosed cases of PTSD, um, 
the idea was that providing a trigger warning would be a kind of uh, an emotional heads up. Uh, maybe that's not the right phrase. It would be a heads up in order for students to be able to manage their emotions. So the underlying theory was, uh, let's use these warnings for this particular population of students so that they can prepare themselves to engage with the material and not be emotionally overwhelmed. Because what psychological research does show is that if you do suffer from PTSD and you are triggered, you are absolutely not going to be in a state where you can learn effectively, right? So the idea was it was almost a tool of emotional regulation, right? Let's try and avoid this overwhelming stress response so you can concentrate on the material at hand. So when Amna and I, and when the researchers say they don't work, what they mean is something more, I don't know, um, more specific in that the, the finding, and this is a pretty strong consensus, the finding is that issuing these trigger warnings does not reduce stress or anxiety. And that's true for both the general population of students, those without a history of trauma, and that's also true for students with PTSD. So, so, so that's the kind of mechanisms and the underlying logic uh, based on what we know so far from the psychological research. Um, it, it doesn't support um, the, the original case that was made for their usage. But even if the data did find that it lowered a student's anxiety, for example, what being proposed here is a medical intervention on behalf of faculty members. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember reading that it's not often so straightforward what will trigger an emotional response. It's not like, it's not always, you know, I haven't, I experienced a sexual assault. This piece of content has uh, themes of sexual assault in it, and that's going to trigger me. I, I've read that it's, it's often a sight or a sound or a smell even that can trigger these sorts of responses. And, you know, how do you account for the entire universe of someone's Triggering, it's, it's, you're almost asking faculty, or faculty are taking it upon themselves in some case, to be the medical prof professional. And the other concern here is that you know, mental health professionals who deal with this sort of trauma say that telling people to avoid the trauma you know, or triggering words is actually detrimental because you know the, the remedy for this is not avoidance, but uh, planned intervention, a planned exposure or you know, in, in moderation to these triggers so that people can go on to live their lives without, you know, having emotional or anxiety uh, or distress as a result of them. So, 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 I mean, this is extremely important point that you raise, which is what is it that may trigger uh, the population of students that have PTSD? And as you said, it's not particular topics. It's sensory stimuli. And so when Amna and I first started to, to look into the research, I reached out to one of my best friends who's a psychiatrist, MD psychiatrist, uh, has worked with many uh, veterans in Massachusetts. And I said, hey, what, what, can you give me an example of some triggers? And I, I just want to hit a few highlights because I think it's very telling about how subjective and how unpredictable the triggers are. So here's smell, a bonfire, liquors, mostly the whiskey types. Uh, burning wire, uh, hearing, a tractor mowing hay, uh, whispering, a different particularly low tone of voice, tastes, bubblegum, 
Condiments, especially A1 sauce, hot coffee, visual images that have been triggers for some of his patients, the cartoon Michelin Man, antiques, Halloween costumes. So this gives you a sense of how wildly variable triggers are. And I think that too many profs imagine that, okay, we have a disturbing topic, we need a warning. But it's not about intellectual concepts. It's about sensory stimuli. Yeah. And, you know, one of the questions that I have is if you're concerned with uh, triggers for students, you know, how do you create a directory of triggers that would account for everyone's traumas, right? Unless you go to every student ahead of the class and say, okay, please give me a list of your traumas. I'll analyze my course content and we'll let you know if there is something within there that might trigger you. And then that also create, of course, creates you liable, makes you liable because then you know the triggers. And if you don't warn people, then, you know, you could be accused of uh, traumatizing them in this, that or the other, but I'm going to go ahead. Can I just come in? I mean, even if you did that, I don't think that people who suffer from PTSD necessarily always know what's going to trigger them. That's that's the other piece. You They may themselves not be aware of what will be a trigger. So you can't pre, you know, pre your class actually collect a list of triggers and then avoid them. The other p- thing is like people process things in different ways. You give them a reading, you give them a video to watch. Different things stick out to different people. There's so many times I've shown something, and that's the whole point of multiple interpretations, or we've read something and someone's picked out something that I totally missed on in a reading that I've done like 500 mm. times. But that is the process of learning and engaging and bringing in different points and voices. And, and so one of the issues here, uh, Nico, and something that I found intriguing, because we'll, we'll talk about this with, with our students, and the one argument that I found resonate with students who are uh, initially sympathetic to the use of trigger warnings is to talk about the nature of education in a liberal arts institution often revolves around classroom discussion. I was going to bring this point up, and so I'm glad you're doing it. If, if you want to have an organic classroom discussion, which is arguably, or at least in my view, the most powerful possible means of of education, right? Students are going to be responding to one another, building on one another. You can't possibly predict the direction that a classroom discussion is going to take. That's part of what makes it magic, magical and beautiful and so transformative potentially. So the idea that you could somehow even work with this concept of trigger warnings in the context of an education that is based on or centers discussion, to me, just makes no sense at all. It's an impossibility. You guys noted uh, in the beginning of this discussion that the justification for this was to prepare students to engage with content in class. But in your article, you talk about uh, Professor Michael Bugeja, and I hope I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. He's a Iowa State journalism professor, and he says that trigger warnings are needed now more than ever and that all faculty members should follow his lead in implementing them. Uh, and he has a note in his syllabi that says, you don't ha- quote, you don't have to attend class if the content elicits an uncomfortable emotional response. So it's not there that he was preparing students to engage with the content. He's given them carte blanche to just ignore the content entirely if the content elicits not even like trauma or anxiety, but an uncomfortable emotional response. And then you go on in the article later to make it a point that I hadn't heard yet, but uh, strikes me as just obvious. 
Most of our points are obvious, Nico. Yeah, but at the college level, you, I'm quoting you here, we don't believe the hol- Holocaust, slavery, genocide, and other harrowing topics should come in two different versions, regular and light. What you're saying there, essentially, is if these topics are traumatizing to you, we can't, and we probably shouldn't sanitize them if we want to seriously investigate them, right? And and so if you have a medical condition that precludes you from being able to discuss them, that's probably something you should take up with a mental health professional. And we shouldn't sanitize the entirety of course content for one particular individual. I mean, there, there's a, there also needs to be a certain kind of understanding on behalf of people who want to enroll at a college or university that certain discussions will happen, that the content is often uncomfortable. And you know, you need to ask yourself whether you're prepared for that yet, or whether you might need to seek additional medical help before you're able to matriculate. So this is where I think, you know, you're getting to the heart of what our problem with trigger warnings are. You know, one is that it's becoming an avenue for people to avoid encountering certain material. And this is in Professor Bogeha, who I think is a very thoughtful and compassionate professor. That's very clear from how he structures his courses, nonetheless provides this opt-out option. And you really don't have to do much except for send him an email and say, I'm not comfortable with this. So students, one, can use it as a way to avoid material. And we all know that some of the most transformative experiences in terms of learning come from when you contend with something difficult. And here we are in a moment when we're talking about how the U.S. needs a racial reckoning, how we need to reckon with our past. Now, that past is not easy to reckon with. And at one level, we're having student activists, quite rightly, saying, we need to deal with this. And this is the moment. You know, it's been way too long. And at another level, if that if we have an out to dealing with difficult material, then there is just no way we can do this. That's one thing. The second thing I'd like to say is that you have to think about what is the... So this is from the student point of view that I talked about first. Then you have to think about it from the faculty point of view. You know, no, no faculty enjoys being called by the dean's office to be told anything other than being told you're doing a good job, which they never really do call and tell you. So, so... You know, being called and being, you know, having a problem to deal with when you've got 26 students to teach in one class, probably 50 in another class, you've got your home life, you don't want to be dealing with a problem about some student was upset by something. So when you look at readings and you're planning your syllabus, you're like, ah, this one's going to cause some problem. I'm just going to throw it out. Now, that is where academic freedom and trigger warnings are coming into, you know, they're, they're at loggerheads over here. And our duty as educators and as higher education is to privilege our mission, which is learning and teaching, and we need to have the freedom to do it. So in the end, what's happening is we would be shortchanging our own students. This is not good for anyone. So I, I, I just want to briefly amplify a couple of points that, that Amna made and, and really hammer them home because they're, to me, so essential to this discussion. One is... Uh, that particular piece uh, by the Iowa State professor does a couple of noteworthy things that are representative of larger trends. One, it's it encourages faculty to use trigger warnings not just for a spe- the specific population of students that have PTSD, but for all students, right? So all of a sudden you've gone from a very small fraction of the student body to trigger warnings being potentially applicable to everyone. Right. You also have a term, you know, I'm sure we're all familiar with this idea of concept creep. Right. So rather than uh, talking about triggers uh, 
for, for, for material that is potentially, you know, really severely distressing graphic, um, uh, uh, that prof lands on this phrase, you know, any material that elicits an uncomfortable emotional reaction. Students who attend virtually every single one of my classes are going to be having uncomfortable emotional reactions. And that's not because uh, I'm putting them on the spot or I'm an inconsiderate teacher. Uh, it's because the nature of the content that I teach as a historian of the United States is by definition disturbing. I just taught a class uh, last week on eugenics, right? The history of eugenics in this country, including a legacy of tens of thousands of forced sterilizations of, of poor folks and, and, and folks of color in the early 20th century. Justified is, by the Supreme Court and Buckley yes. Bell, of course. Is, yeah. is incredibly disturbing, right? I don't want any student to be able to exempt themselves from that class session because it's going to be uncomfortable. The discomfort is fundamentally related to the transformative potential uh, of that material. So I think Amna and I are especially worried about this kind of opt-out clause that you see either as a formal policy or that we've observed just through talking with students when they think about trigger warnings and you're like, yeah, well, wh why are you in support of them? They'll say things like, oh, because you give a heads up to students and then if they don't want to do that reading or go to that class session, it allows them to avoid that particular engagement. Yeah, FIRE has always operated, and I've talked about this in previous podcasts, under what we call the strong student model. That is, that is to say that students are, aren't too weak to live with freedom. They're not too weak to engage in the sort of uncomfortable and difficult and necessary conversations that happen on a college campuses. But that philosophy, you know, in the past five or six years has been challenged uh, not by college administra administrators who were always the you know constituency who were was challenging that philosophy, but now by the students themselves. The students are, are themselves are saying that they're uh, they would not wouldn't phrase this way, but they're too weak to live with you know, or to uh, get an education that privileges discomfort and difficult conversations over concerns about their uh, quote unquote security or or, or well being. So I just wanted to say, um, I mean, I think you're really getting to the heart of the problem over here, which is what is the purpose of education and how we're approaching it. The model that I am familiar with and that I like to use is that we are here to empower our students and our students are strong enough. And of course, we contextualize material. Let me just be clear. We're not in favor of springing disturbing material on our students. I think there are many, many other ways of creating a compassionate and considerate classroom than using trigger warnings. So that's not the point here. But also, you know, it's, it's not just that students are asking for them. And I don't even know if all students are asking for them, but it's become one of those things through which you signal what your politics are, right? That you, oh, but you need to have trigger warnings, professor, because then you're indicating that you are in a particular site, in a particular group that agrees that you need to privilege the feelings of other people. So in some level, in some ways, I feel like it's also a virtue signaling ploy, yeah, well, and I, and I will say, let me push back a bit, you know, and, and there are some pedagogical reasons for springing things uh, on, on students. Uh, you know, authors do it all the time with plot twists, for example. And if you're teaching a literature course, you might want not want to know that the character is murdered at the end or that, you know, the uh, the young adult is, for example, raped, thinking of a couple books where that's a very significant plot twist. Um, so, 
you know, offering these trigger warnings is also kind of a spoiler alert that diminishes the effect that was intended by the authors of the work. Uh, Jay Caspian Kang, writing in The New Yorker in 2014, talked about how his professor gave a trigger warning uh, before reading Lolita. And I'm paraphrasing here, and it was something to the effect of this novel is about the systematic rape of an underage girl, right? Something like that. And, you know, he talked about how that completely distorted his ability to engage with the novel, right? Um, Yeah. uh, and, yeah, I mean, you learn pretty quick that in Lolita that that's probably what's going on. Although uh, Nabokov, I don't think ever states explicitly uh, that that happened. I, yes. It's been years since I remembered no, it, no, but it's kind of that's exactly telling right. you. Yeah, that's something that students need to discuss. Students, but anybody who reads literature needs to make these discoveries and inferences on their own, right? So this is a huge problem with art and literature. You're, you're telegraphing to students the meaning of text, the meaning of films, how they should interpret particular scenes. Uh, so yeah, no, that is a, that is a big problem. So, so we're almost at an hour here. We are at an hour here before we close this up. Anything else? I wanted to add also that, uh, I don't think we explicitly said it. Your guys's article was based on a, an analysis of 17 different studies that have kind of come to the same conclusion on this. Um, and I'll link to the article in the show notes. So the, so that the, listeners can take a look at your article and maybe dive deeper if they want to explore um, that topic. You know, we mentioned coddling and while that's not an official fire book, it is my boss's book. And I will say on the topic of trigger warnings and social media and its effect on young people, they seem to have been ahead of the curve on those two very important uh, topics, you know, with of, of course all the revelations about Instagram and everything they had in that book about its effect on young people and in particular uh, young girls uh, seems as though that Facebook had discovered that on their own and didn't want that to leak out. And, uh, their book is sold like, I think three quarters of a million copies or something. It's done ridiculously well for a nonfiction book, but, uh, kudos to them for being the head on the curve on both these topics. Anything either of you want to add before we, uh, sign off here on, on either DEI or trigger warnings? The, the one other thing that I would say about trigger warnings, um, and I say this particularly for students um, who, who do not have a history of trauma uh, or a history of, of PTSD, but it can encourage a kind of narcissism to our understanding and approach of material and content. And so a really brief anecdote, um, one of my colleagues was telling me about a talk that was given by a woman who had fled uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo during the Civil War the dis- discussion, the talk that she gave was was graphic. It was heartrending. Uh, it was also extremely illuminating about the nature of what was happening in that region. Um, uh, so she gave this talk, uh, you know, showing enormous courage and bravery to, 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 to speak in front of a group of, I can't remember, maybe 100 different students. And one of the first reactions to the talk was a student who kind of ran up to the professor and said, this talk should have come with a trigger warning. And to my mind, uh, that may be a point or a question that you want to raise, but it seems to me that should be number 10 on a list of those points and questions and that one should start by engaging with the content. One should start by acknowledging 
kind of the bravery of this person who came and shared their life experience with 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 them. So 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 to me, it can kind of turn other people's narratives, the key developments in U.S. history, whatever it is, plot twists in literature, turn them in such a way that everything is squarely in relation to me as an individual and my concerns. And, and that I don't think is, is, is helpful in terms of engaging with material if we think of it purely from an egocentric lens. Yeah. I mean, the human experience is varied, right? And uh, one of the most interesting things about exploring it is to explore people's waywardness and their foibles. And often that means exploring some of the unsavory parts of the human condition. Uh, I think the reason many people go to college, or for me in particular why I went to college, is to be able to explore uh, those issues in an unsanitized way, you know, to put the magnifying glass on humanity and ask the difficult questions. And I, I couldn't imagine an environment where it's scrubbed or, you know, a Holocaust light, for example, as you guys write in your, in your piece, it just doesn't seem interesting to me. Um, not interesting and not accurate. Yes. Yes. I, I just got done listening to a podcast by Dan Carlin about the Eastern front, uh, in world war two and the savagery that happened on, on that front. And it's a shame that to the extent we talk about world war two, we often talk about the Western front because that's the front the Americans, um, uh, fought on, but the number of people who died died in single battles on the Eastern front was, was more than Americans lost in the entire war. The raping that happened on the Eastern front, the, the, the Holocaust by bullets that happened, not just on the, the Nazi side, but, uh, the Soviet side and then what the Soviets did to their own citizens, using them as cannon fodder, essentially, um, Holy cow, you know, it, it, if anything, you know, Dan Carlin didn't put a trigger warning on it. And I'm glad he didn't because now I have a greater conception of the horrors that humanity can, fl- can inflict on itself. Um, I'd recommend that to our listeners as well. I think it's called the uh, ghosts of the Oz front, but I think we'll leave it there. Um, Amna and, and Jeff, I appreciate you coming on and talking with me today. And hopefully I can have you both on the show sometime again soon. Thank you, Nico. This was fantastic. Thank you so much, Nico. Great questions. Yeah, those are uh, Carleton College professors Amna Khalid and Jeffrey Snyder. They're the authors of two recent articles in the Chronicle of Higher Education, one being How to Fix Diversity and Equity, and the other being The Data is in Trigger Warnings Don't Work. This podcast is hosted and produced and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by my colleague, Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk or on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. We do take email feedback and I hear from you often. Keep the emails coming. So to speak at the fire.org. Again, that email address is so to speak at the fire.org. If you have any recommendations for shows, please send them my way. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts, Google Play. They help us attract new listeners to the show. Until next time, I thank you all again for listening. <laughs>